millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's culture podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. Kate, before we go any further, I'm just going to read a short thing to clear the air. Go for it. Because I think if I don't get this out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bother me. I'm all ears. Through, throughout the whole um, episode. Looking out across the nighttime, the city winks a sleepless eye. Hear her voice shake my window. Sweet, seducing sighs. Get me out into the nighttime. Four walls won't hold me tonight. If this town is just an apple, then let me take a bite. And what is that? Human nature. The song we've we've been loving for the last forty eight hours it's, and longer. It's actually a bit more poetic than I'd um, than I'd remembered it. It's being. also structurally better than I yeah. ever knew. It was one of the sort of late Michael Jackson ones that I wasn't particularly bothered by, mm. but we heard it last night at a strange Quincy Jones birthday party to celebrate eighty five years of Jones. Jones on this earth. So this week is a uh, sort of special episode because we're t- we're talking about uh, Quincy Jones's 85th birthday, and we're also talking about this exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery called called disappointingly on the wall, uh, which is uh, art inspired by the great Michael Jackson. So obviously, there's a Michael Jackson thread through all of this. Quincy Jones having been um, Michael's producer and um, mentor and collaborator throughout the thriller and and bad eras and before, I think, as well. And we'll have a, I mean, it's all sort of one non-aversary, especially because it's nine years this week since Jackson died. It is. I remember it was Glastonbury. Do you remember? Do you remember? I wasn't at Glastonbury, but I remember the message trying to get through to lots of people at Glastonbury. And there was the class. I mean, there were sort of fewer um, charging tents even then than there are now. Yeah. And there was a little time lag. Um, where there were journalists at Glastonbury who were being required to write about him who hadn't even heard the news yet. Big things happen at Glastonbury. I mean, Brexit happened over Glastonbury as well, didn't it? So, did they do any? Was there? Did anyone sort of pull out some amazing Michael Jackson covers? I think. Or anything? I, I think there was something. I was actually in the bar of the Phoenix Theatre on Charing Cross Road, oh, so yeah. it was slightly kind of where were you when it mm. happened? What about you? Do you remember? I was. Well, I remember the day at work. I don't remember. What, it what was time late of day at night. did we get? Okay, it must yeah. have been so. It must have been late at night the night before. So I don't remember that, but I remember the Friday at work. I was working at the Times, and it was weirdly quite exciting because it was one of those. Because I've never worked on, I've always worked on the kind of weekly art supplements and things, but 
it was um, all hands on deck. Like everyone was sort of rushing to produce this big supplement that they were going to do. For Scraping the, for to the find Saturday. the last person that interviewed yeah. him alive or if there were the old smash hits cuttings left over and that kind of thing. Yeah. But it was also, it obviously wasn't before social media, but it was, you know, if you think about the reactions to celebrity deaths of the last few years, we didn't really have that for, for Jackson. And I, I kind of remember just you know, I'm a huge fan and I remember kind of just plowing on and, and sort of not, I don't remember kind of wallow, mm. wallowing in messages of, of sort of mass grief. It was dealt with in the old way, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, which is so different to how we've, how we've seen the reactions to, um, to Bowie and co. But, you did this piece uh, in the New Statesman a few weeks ago. Well, let's about, just go straight in. Let's just go straight yeah. in. Okay. Margot Jefferson's 2006 slim volume on Michael Jackson. Um, and you make the point that we're still waiting for the the big book, the big critical appraisal or reappraisal. It doesn't. He hasn't been talked about in the way that Bowie and all those guys have been talked about critically within the music industry and also within the um, within the press. It's almost like people still don't quite know what to what to do with him. Yeah, I mean, I thought the the Bowie comparison I thought was kind of interesting because they kind of played off on some of the same themes in terms of their sort of shape-shifting nature, the way that they were kind of played with notions of masculinity and femininity and 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 race even, very obviously in Jackson's case, but but Bowie even kind of messed around with that a little bit. Race and gender race fluidity. Race and gender fluidity, exactly. And there's a few there's a few reasons why um I think Bowie has the kind of legacy sewn up and and Jackson doesn't. And Margot Jefferson makes the point in her book that Bowie was has always been really good at talking about and claiming credit for his work as a sort of intellectual project. And Jackson just hasn't because he's got this kind of dreamy persona. He talks very vaguely in like, and how much he loves, uh, you know, I don't know. He, he just talks in kind of vague notions of warmth and humanity and never really kind of gives the impression that he's actually meticulously plotting a career or an identity change or a kind of... And yet know, at the same time, he was self-fashioning, wasn't he? I mean, you were saying yesterday about the the press stunts, the sort of obsession with Barnum and Bailey and the the um, relationship to the legends like the oxygen tank mm. and the elephant man. And was it So was it true that he had the oxygen well, tank? Well, from the, the, the biographies... Uh, I mean, I think it's a slightly open question, but certainly the the implication is um, that him, uh, Michael Jackson and his press guy at the time planted these stories, the oxygen tank and and that he was trying to buy the bones of the elephant man from the British Museum. <laughs> um, they planted these stories in the press. There was like one photo of him in an oxygen cha- tank, which which ended up in the tabloids as a kind of, you know, you mentioned P.T. Barnum. He loved the idea of the circus master, the show master, and and he gave uh, his staff all copies of P.T. Barnum's autobiography, saying, you know, this is what I, I want my career to be the greatest show on earth. So um, he did, he kind of fanned the flames of that. And then I think he sort of just lost control mm, of the narrative. It sort of worked against him and yet ultimately for him because he became this Christ-like, strange, sacrificed figure but didn't he also have this weird rule with MTV that they had to say twice a week that he was the king of pop like yeah. they literally had a quota of using yeah. those words yeah. twice a week. if when when he launched the video to black or white 
basically, if you wanted to show this, you had to sign up to this Michael Jackson is the king of pop thing. And yeah, they had to, uh, they, 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 there was a document that said they had to refer to him as the king of pop at least twice a week, which doesn't sound that often, actually. No, I know. I thought <laughs> that was... He could, could, have, could have been more demanding. More to, if you really want to hammer it home, you could have been a bit more demanding than that. I don't know. I got into a real, when I was looking at this, I got into a real black hole of um, where that phrase, when and where that yeah. phrase was first used. I don't Whether th- it was Elvis or I something. I don't think he invented, I don't think, he, cr- I don't think he called himself the singer, the king of pop initially, but I think he he latched onto it, and I mean it worked. It's st- and, and you know mm. that's kind of um, that's kind of self fulfilling. Um, There's an interesting point there as well about you know we all know that he was this sort of Peter Pan, this this sort of frozen in this prepubescent state, and you made this point that he he was actually a sex object as a child. So I think that's yeah. a very interesting idea that if you are being, I mean, there's a, a quote in the in the exhibition, in fact, about being mobbed. Oh, um, yeah. He told the son in adult life, getting mobbed really hurts. You feel like you're spaghetti among thousands of hands. They're just ripping you and pulling your hair and you feel like any moment you're going to break. So it's almost like when he was a, a, a little sex object at the age of 11, mm. he was being forced to behave uh, in a sexual manner and also to be touched in a sort of like a very grasping, covetous manner. Mm. And in a way, he, he was sort of probably just terrified by it from that point onwards. So he didn't develop sort of psychosexually, maybe. And that's why he was in this mess at the end. Yeah, I think, it. you know, and the... The exhibition um, at the National Portrait Gallery includes a kind of defaced copy of the Rolling Stone magazine from 70-something. I've got it written down somewhere. 71. 71, yeah. When he's 11 years old and he's the youngest ever uh, person to to be on the cover of, of Rolling Stone. And he was a sex object. And that's something that I completely hadn't mm. really occurred to me. And also, you know, when they started out at Jackson 5, they were playing strip clubs the yeah. whole time. And there's a weird, you know, there's a, the one of Jackson's siblings, you sort of constantly need to remind yourself that he's one of 10. Uh, one of 10 siblings um, said later that uh, he basically lo- lost his virginity at some point as a teenager, like some member of the family or someone in the kind of coterie decided it was time. And he had three prostitutes, three prostitutes. work on him. Yeah, work on him. The That's quote, the according yeah. to Jefferson, I think, yeah. right? <laughs> But it was also, um, just to go back to that idea of kind of self-fashioning, something that comes up again and again, and you spot it in odd moments in this exhibition as well, is that he was totally sponge-like and constantly absorbing and taking note of stuff that was going on around him. So he's, you know, he's absorbing P.T. Barnum's autobiography, which is a weird place to start if you're a pop star. Yeah. Um, But he's also, there's a... There's a room in the exhibition um, by the photographer Todd Gray, um, who was Jackson's personal photographer um, in the early 80s. And Todd Gray was on the radio the other day and he was talking about in the early days of photographing Jackson and being on a film set and Catherine Hepburn and um, who else was it? Jane Fonda were there, basically. And Michael was learning from them very explicitly learning from them how to be photographed, how to kind of own... Uh, how old? Um, As a kid? That would be in the late 70s, so mm. like maybe age 18 or something, 17, 18. But then also, you know, there's a photograph of... Todd Gray does these strange photographs where he um, juxtaposes images from Ghana 
Yeah, he goes to some remote Ghanaian fishing village with pictures of Michael Jackson and shows them to locals, doesn't he? He does that. And he also has some original pictures of Michael Jackson, which he's shot. And then they're kind of obscured. um, Things are placed on top of each other. But there's there's one I really liked, which is Jackson and... He's either wearing a Mickey Mouse T-shirt or he's, there's, there's Mickey Mouse in the shot. And Todd Gray just notes, you know, he was really, Jackson was really interested in Walt Disney and um, Mickey Mouse. And he studied Disney and yeah. Mickey Mouse. Well, Quincy Jones said last night he met him mm. at first at 12. And what struck him was his eye for detail. Mm. But also, <laughs> when you, yeah, I, and but it is, it really comes out, the more you read, it comes up again and again. And those very, very early days in the Jackson 5, He's constantly described standing in the wings, watching James Brown, watching all these, you know, legendary performers that they came up under and basically absorbing all their dance moves, all their tricks, all their quirks. I mean, that's kind of how he learned to be a weirdly confident sexual performer at age 12 mm. was watching James Brown on these on these mm. things. Um, so... Um, yeah, that's the kind of that's the thread that runs. It's runs a funny show because it. it's it's specifically his impact on art. Obviously, and there's a, there's a, I felt there's a certain caution to it. There's very little. It's it's no David Bowie is. It's sort of there's little in the way of personal effects as you would imagine. I mean, they probably can't get their hands on them anyway. Although there is a um, my favourite thing was a, a jacket that Michael had commissioned that he called his dinner jacket, which was made by Michael Lee Bush, and it was basically a leather jacket covered in knives and forks because, <laughs> in Jackson's words, cutlery is something every man, woman, and child knows. <laughs> so it was like his kind of children's entertainer yeah. jacket. It's my dinner jacket, and it never failed to cause chuckles around the dinner. <laughs> table at Neverland. <laughs> I mean, imagine these, I mean... Imagine the staff having to politely laugh every time the dinner jacket gets put on. But also imagine these scenes at Neverland where these kids like, you know, Sean Lennon and, and these other like little... Colkin. Bo- yeah, are kind of sitting down to dinner with Michael Jackson <laughs> in, in his uh, in his cutlery dinner jacket. It's, it's bizarre. It's so bizarre. It's kind of like a, yeah, a record of artistic reactions to the inspiration that he gave fans. And there is, there, there is actually kind of sophisticated fan art there. There's a fan called Dawn Meller who'd drawn him obsessively between 1984 and 1986. And you can see her drawing skills improve in her teenage years. And then uh, one of the most sort of I thought rather ridiculous um, installations was the work of um, Graham Dolphin who gets album covers and then basically writes the lyrics out on them so small it's like he's writing on a grain of rice at a fairground or something so you just have you know you have bad with all the lyrics to bad obsessively carved out and then he points out that you know this is this is just a study of the of the the way the mind works when you are extremely into a pop star and this is how you pour over them and how you go further and further into the image and the object yeah this is what he did age 12 13 in his bedroom i think that they um they kind of w- once i heard him talk about that they resonated with me a bit because yeah. that is you know i was just showing you earlier this um i brought in as a totem my cassette copy of michael jackson's bad and it's got um i'm just gonna sound <laughs> effects open it there there's like a kind of quadruple folded inlay with all the lyrics all the credits and then these um sort of grid of eight Michael Jackson poses which I just used to obsessively study <coughs> and actually there's one very very early on when you get into the exhibition there's um there's a sequence of stills from the way you make me feel and it's striking how as a silhouette he's so recognizable mm. um just the poses you know you could you can you can you can spot him a mile I mean I I was trying to think 
who else is so recognisable yeah. just from the silhouette? You've got the jacket flying out to one side and the fizzle of fringe yeah. sticking up and that's all it needs and maybe one arm flung out to the side. The only other person I could think was so recognisable from their silhouette is E.T. Yeah, which who, 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 who he features with because uh, one particular artist merged his face and E.T.'s together as cultural icons of that year. Um, there's also, I, I thought, a very bad installation of some, some penny loafers with balloons attached to them and it's supposed to be his trademark penny loafers. I mean, I... I didn't think there was anything especially moving in the exhibition, apart from the rather ballsy David LaChapelle's American Jesus series, which came out just after his death, where he he literally put Michael as Jesus trampling the devil or being held in the arms of another Jesus mm. with these. Um, did you find out how they did these so photo shots? I've, I've, I've found out that definitely the, the one with Michael as a sort of archangel figure with the devil at his feet, that is a lookalike. Really? He shot that with a lookalike. And I'm guessing that the others are also shot with models, um, even though they look so but they look uncannily so, like. And so late period Jackson as well, the very gaunt sort of, you know, mask-like face with a little cleft in the chin. It's possibly a combination of really, really good lookalikes, really good makeup artists, and then possibly digital and manipulation tweaking. as well. Um, but they're... Um, yeah, they're... They're great. And I, I really like the early one as well, which is um, it's called something like An Illuminating Path. And it, it riffs on the um, Billie Jean video. And it's just him stepping out into this slightly kind of no man's land landscape on these illuminated blocks. I really enjoyed it. And it's, it's, it's fascinating if you, if you are a fan, but it does slightly skim along the surface. And I wonder if that's a, a product of the the, mo- the the quickest responses or the best responses um, coming from people who are fans. Mm. Um, so this this shows a combination of original of commissioned work. So for instance, the Graham Dolphin things you just mentioned were were commissioned for the show, um, and then they've gone back and trawled through mm. people's archives and things to find. Uh, and there's there's a couple of very famous things like Andy Warhol's um, screen printed covers for for Time magazine. But if we're talking, if we're thinking about him. Now, in, in 2018, he speaks so strongly to the present moment in terms of identity politics, mm. in terms of being someone who's gender fluid, racially fluid, non-binary before the world word mm. was really in use. And you kind of, that's hinted at in a couple of places, but you kind of wanted someone to, to grapple a bit more. It's uh, funny how some of the, strongly with that. the biggest cultural figures always feel in retrospect like they were out of time mm. just by a few years um one of the things i did find quite moving in it was that he continued to do interviews for ebony magazine throughout his career mm. and there's a strange little there's a blow up of a, of a little kind of picture in ebony in the early 80s the kind of thriller period where they'd they projected their their image of what he would be like as a middle-aged man basically it's just the same michael jackson with a pencil thin mustache looking a bit like a spiv and there was a quote to the effect of he was um he will be a proud African American man with many more fans than he has now. And everything that's contained in there about the way that he changed his skin colour and everything, and the the fact that nobody could have predicted that he was going mm. to leave that world behind at the same time as kind of keeping a toe in it by continuing to talk to that magazine. He just looks like ordinary Michael Jackson from mm. the seventies in that picture, but sort of, you know, obviously slightly aged or something. And I thought I thought that was quite affecting. And they couldn't have known. Like. No, no. And and in a way, it's that it's that process of transformation that isn't really plumbed by the mm. by the exhibition, is it? I mean, there's we a, don't quite dare. There's a there's a there's a really nice Keith 
herring um, image towards the beginning, which is a sort of portrait of Michael Jackson. And one of my favourite quotes on Jackson from that kind of transformation period is from Keith Herring in his diary he wrote, for Michael's attempts to take creation into his in his own hands and invent a non-black, non-white, non-male, non-female <laughs> creature, a little scary maybe, but nonetheless remarkable. So already in 1987, you know, before the really extreme stuff, Keith Herring was seeing what he was doing mm. and saying, you know, actually this this isn't necessarily something appalling. It's, you know, it's out of the ordinary, but it's kind of it's sort of amazing that he's doing it. Um, There's one room at the end where you actually get straight video footage of him. And mm. I thought that was one of the most effective bits as well, because I think he's on stage in, is it Romania? Just after yes. Ceausescu? Yes. And it's uh, it's one of these expertly edited kind of bits of concert footage where you get as much fan as you do person on stage. But he's he's just standing there looking like, basically like a freakish statue, completely stock still with sunglasses on. And I realised that Taylor Swift has stolen this, uh, mm-hmm. the the technique of the controlled scream from Michael Jackson. So when you see Taylor Swift now, she will, at the end of a song, just stand there and stare at the audience, looking in her case like baffled and, oh, I can't believe how much you love me. And the fact that the camera's on her face and these big screens behind whips up the audience into an increasing frenzy and the little girls in the audience just scream more and more and more. And this will go on sometimes for like five or six minutes at Taylor Swift gigs. And you can see Michael Jackson doing that. Like me standing still here is all that it's going to take for you to be crying. Mm. And that's sort of, I thought that was really odd compared to the old Beatles footage where they're actually singing at that point. He doesn't have to do anything at all. And the crowd are going completely They're being stretched off. Yeah, they're being stretched I mean, I'm off. sure that's footage from elsewhere in the night being cut in, but it was, um, you know, it was it was different from watching... The, the live concert footage of the Stones at their show at the Saatchi Gallery or the um, or the, the the Pink Floyd one and all those kind of things, which is mm. more like sort of, and here's a surround sound effect with mm. the great men on stage. And this yeah. was like, this is the art project. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you're looking at. And also in that you see how he kind of, not only through the physical changes, but costume and stuff, how he sort of began to augment himself. Like he gradually gets more and more sort of armour as he goes on throughout his career. That's sort of mid uh, that's early mid nineties, isn't it? And um, he's wearing this kind of almost like weird, like chain mail. It's the kind history of, tour, I feel. Uh, is it? Yeah. Or dangerous? Dangerous, no, dangerous. I think yeah, it yeah, is because yeah. he's playing jam, isn't he? With a sort of, it's kind of like a cross between a leotard and a chain mail, <laughs> a chain mail jacket. Um, and then obviously you mentioned the dinner dinner jacket, and then um, the one of the sort of key. Um, pieces in the show is a is a portrait that Michael Jackson commissioned from an artist called Kahinde Wiley, whose work Jackson had spotted, spotted in, um, I think it's the Brooklyn Museum of Art mm. or something like that. It's the actual name is the equestrian portrait of Philip II. Brackets, Michael Jackson. <laughs> Brackets, Michael Jackson. <laughs> um, so it's based on Rubens and, it, and it's Michael Jackson on horseback wearing armour with a kind of blue flowing cape behind him, looking amazingly sort of regal and powerful. That Armour is something that he kind of began to put on in the imagery and in the music mm. t- towards the towards the end of his, his career. the face got more, um, in Margot Jefferson's words, Gorgon-like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we had word that last night Quincy Jones was celebrating his 85th birthday in the in the O2 Arena, which is quite a depressing place to have your 85th birthday. But amazingly, he invited us, which I thought was really nice because I haven't spoken to him for ages. (laughs) We had a feeling that most of the tickets were going to be press tickets, actually. But no, it was it was quite full. So Quincy was on stage with Nick Harcourt and um, uh, being interviewed. And he also had a sort of big slick soul band and orchestra behind him and various special guests. And it was a it was an odd evening, wasn't it? It was one of the weirdest gigs I've ever been. <laughs> it was to. like a strange dream. Uh, so the the sort of little Q and A's with Quincy, and then intercut with with performances of songs. I mean, it's an it's an odd premise in the first place because Quincy Jones is a producer, not a musician or a songwriter. So how do you pay tribute to a producer? Well, I guess you. That's why we have this big orchestra, and there's this kind of lavish arrangements so you're hearing his the stuff he's done in the studio kind of recreated in in brilliant sound that presumably they were all his arrangements as well so but he wasn't particularly interactive it wasn't a master class was it it wasn't like hey guys plays the play the bass line out and beat it yeah hit it it wasn't like that at all he was sort of in the corner and it's funny because obviously there was this great viral hit with the article in gq quincy jones has a story about that uh, where he basically dished the dirt on everybody he'd ever worked with, and um, it was a great piece. And and I can't, you kind of got the feeling that he was very, very um, virile still and very engaged. And and actually, I don't know what it was, but I mean, he kind of picked up throughout the evening. But at the beginning, he certainly felt like he was sort of slightly cantankerous and grumpy. And Harcourt said at one point, um, "You were born in I can't remember the name of the place." And Quincy hissed, "I was born in Chicago." <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how it started. Um, but yeah, he was he he had some he had some great lines. One of my favourite. quotes, from him was um i was surrounded by mafia all my young life he's <laughs> so oh, kind yeah, of like rather aphoristic statement amazing mafia stories though he describes he's talking about um sinatra stopped all racism in 1964 <laughs> i i mean obviously he meant the kind of racism surrounding him and the other musicians in in las vegas at the time and he describes turning up at this hotel in vegas in 64 and it's him and can you remember who else is there no. Basie, he mentioned Basie's yeah. band. Um, Sinatra brought along these 18 mafia guys. <laughs> um, Goomas, he describes them all, which is, I think is the right word. And basically assigned them each a mafia bodyguard <laughs> for the duration of this, this stay or whatever. And he had this Serbo-Croatian guy. <laughs> <laughs> he did the music for um, Richard Brooks's adaptation of In Cold Blood in 1967. And he told a story about how Truman Capote had called Richard and said, I can't believe you have a Negro writing music for a film with no people of colour mm. in it. So there was that um, that undercurrent running throughout his 
earlier years. I also loved how he how he described his work with Spielberg that they agreed that music was emotion lotion. Mm. If you see a beautiful girl down a hall, you need tension and resolution in the music. That's the rule kind of thing. So they were. It's, he's one of those people. Anybody who's at that kind of vintage and that sort of used to doing these sort of on-stage Q&As and these long interviews. They they do speak in wonderful little phrases and, and nuggets of, of, of brilliance, but they're also somehow quite doddery and, um, and tired and a bit weird. And it felt like a strange, like you're, I've seen Bacharach do it as well. Mm. And you're kind of listening out for the for the gold because you know it's there, but it's also very odd to see anyone doing a Q&A at the, at the O2 Arena. It's such a huge place. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people in the audience. And it's sometimes because he has worked, I mean, it's, it is amazingly impressive, but because he has worked with everyone, it occasionally dissolves into just lists of, yeah. you know, Nina Simone, Ella Fitzgerald. You're like, okay, <laughs> we, get, <laughs> we get the impression. But the, um, uh, the, the we had several guests um, mm. for this show. Unclear whether Quincy Jones invited them or, or someone else invited them on his behalf. Who, who did, who we, did had, we have? We had Paul Weller come on very early. Um Again, like something in a strange dream. Long grey hair now. Mm. No longer his feathered blonde sunglasses look. Um, doing a song from the Italian job. Which it, Quincy Jones wrote the soundtrack for. Yeah, but it didn't suit his voice at all. It was very um, croony and strange. He was wearing sort of double-breasted suit double-breasted and a shiny suit. tie. With this, yeah, And was... then he was contrasted by a brilliant Mick Hucknall, who of course did that standards album called American Soul in 2012 which reminded people that he could sing really well it had songs like i only have eyes for you and stuff and he was sort of flawless um but his face has become quite sort of very inflated circular hasn't it (laughs) (laughs) very strange looking but completely perfect yeah yeah uh, no he was really good and actually it's one of those things that um i'm sure you pick this up all the time because you kind of pay more attention to singers singers than i do and you pay a lot of attention to mick hucknall (laughs) It's interesting when someone can really sing that he doesn't, he barely moved. Mm. He kind of, you know, he had maybe, I guess it's called mic technique, but you know, like, you know when to like move the microphone away from you. And yeah. And then when we saw some of the younger performers later on in the night, you know, they were kind of doing all sorts of weird things with their faces yeah. and like swallowing you know, swallowing their words and, you know. This was a very strange thing. There was there was a, um, a group of four or five backing singers who had really great voices and it felt like they'd had just one rehearsal. For a start, they were reading, like they were actually reading the words and possibly the scores as well. And the main guy who took over a lot of the Michael Jackson songs towards the end had a right wide-brimmed hat which cast a shadow over his face <laughs> and he had his head down and he missed the first line from Thriller. So you mm. had the amazing horns at the beginning of the show yeah, and everyone stands up and then it, the song doesn't start. Oh, he's going to really be kicking himself this morning, though, isn't he? I know. I, just... I kept thinking of his mum watching him and she'd be like, so put your face up. We want to see what you look like. Was he shy or, you know, maybe he'd just sort of fallen off his bike and had a black eye or something like that. But it was an odd... When you, when you saw the backing singers taking the lead, you kind of thought, well, you, you want someone to come along and take the mic and, and actually take the song over. And it was mm. sort of a strange... But maybe it was making the point, you know, like we were saying last night, that actually... Um, he was a producer and he's interested in the mechanics of the songs and the arrangements. And so backing singers should be singing the, the lead if they want to. It's, it's striking contrast, isn't it, to um, that amazing Jackson footage we saw where the band is like in this her, um, kind of herded back into this tiny strip at the back of the stage and Jackson has the entire stage to himself. And this where 
you've got 60 musicians taking up the whole stage and you're like, where's the singer? Where's the where's star? The singer? Where's yeah. star? It really, um, it kind of, it didn't highlight the musical, the weakness in the music of those songs because they, there's nothing weak about them. They're really strong, but it, it did, it did, it did kind of leave you unmoored with, mm. without a kind of, without a star vocalist. And he, He's sort of, of um, like everybody of that um age who's still working he claims to be busier than ever this is one of the cliches of being a musician in their 70s or 80s and what he does is he mentors it seems to me that he mentors some interesting young jazz musicians who have slightly Michael Jackson inspired voices Mm. Um, among them Jonah Nilsson who's from Dirty Loops Scandinavian jazz band and Jacob Collier who's this complete genius that's about 22 years old and from Finchley um, and who's one of the sort of sort of stars of the of the jazz scene nobody quite knows what to do with him because he's so off the wall so to speak you liked him didn't this you? was the one standout moment of the night i thought he did human nature with uh lalath hathaway um a duet uh between the two of them and it was the one i i don't know if he's the only one who sort of dared do this or whether he was the only one given given the sort of freedom to do it but he actually reinterpreted the song and he started with this sort of amazing little vocoder machine that he's got singing into it and and playing and manipulating. Um, so it started with this really strange, haunting, haunting vocal noises. And yeah, he just did something really different, mm. with, really different with the song. And it was kind of mesmerizing. He kind of does chords out of his own voice. Yeah. And you either exactly. like it or you don't. Mm. But it's, he had a kind of big YouTube hit a few years ago with, I think, Somewhere Over the Rainbow or something like that. We split the screen up into millions of different little cubes and he was in each one. I saw him um, uh, with Chick Corea, who is one of the best um, jazz pianists in the world, if not the best. And um, he he brought him on at Ronnie Scott's and... Uh, Collier was about 20, head down, really shy. And he was, he had a melodica. So he had a little, one of those things that you blow into with Mm. little kind of 10 keys on it or something. And all these sort of great and good jazz guys were standing around just in awe of him because he would whack out some crazy off the wall tune. And then um, Chick Corea would kind of go, go on, do a bit more. (laughs) He's like reluctantly come to the stage, front of the stage and do another bit of solo and then hang back. But he's, um, he's a very interesting guy. Son of a music teacher, I think. Huh. But yeah. Um, no, I loved him. And the the uh, part of the justification for this show, I guess, and, and I think part of the reason maybe why Quincy Jones sort of signed up for it was that he wanted to celebrate his great friend, Rod Temperton, who I don't think is anywhere near a household name and yet does have a lot of a lot of hits to his um, his in his catalogue, not least Thriller. Mm. Um, so he wrote... Um, he wrote a bunch of songs for for Michael Jackson, and so we we finished with a with a kind of Michael Jackson medley. How many of Michael Jackson's songs do you think he wrote, just off the top of your head? Like, Templeton. No, Michael Jackson. Oh, Michael Jackson. This is one of the misconceptions, right? Yeah. For some reason, people think because I suppose it was the year of Madonna as well that he didn't write his own stuff. Mm. It wasn't really mentioned. Um, I guess it wasn't a show about Michael Jackson, but when they went into the sort of medley at the end, I mean. Um, Beat It, Bad, Smooth Criminal, Billie Jean, Want to Be Starting Something, Another Part of Me. They're all they're all Michael Jackson songs. Mm. And so Rod Temperton did uh, on on Off the Wall. Uh, Rod Temperton wrote Rock With You and Off the Wall. But the first track and possibly the best, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. That was that was that was Jackson Michael. as well. That was Young Michael. 
Um, my my fact of the evening: um, Quincy Jones claims to know twenty six languages, <laughs> and he's one of the very few owners of an egot or a keygot, as he described it, which is Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. If you've got all oh. all four, you've got an egot. And then he said he's actually it's actually a keygot because of Kennedy Center or something. Oh, Scott okay, as well. yeah. We um, thought he'd have about eight hundred grammys. He does. Anyway, catch him in a town near you <laughs> on his next birthday. Kate, who's, whose non-anniversary are we celebrating today? The non-anniversary is, although I don't know exactly how many years ago. Is it? 21. 21 years ago since um, the movie Men in Black. Amazing it is, actually, mm, yeah. I found that quite depressing because that feels just like yesterday. No, it doesn't. It feels 10 years ago. I right. miss. I keep missing a decade. Whenever I think of something that happened in the late 90s, I think it was 10 years yes, ago. Yes, yeah, I know. I've got to that point in my life. Yeah. I I don't have much to say about Men in Black <laughs> other than, other than it, it, um, it's that, and I guess it still happens, but um, to me it's that era of films where, there'd be like a hit soundtrack song that would go with the film. Mm. I don't know. I that guess doesn't it, happen anymore, does, does it? it? Maybe it does and I've missed it. Like, but you, if you think of things like Adam's Family and stuff, yeah. like it was a real like cross, cross media thing that, that went on. And especially if you're, you know, who did the Adam's Family? Was that, um, it was a rapper, wasn't it? <laughs> um, we don't know. We'll come back to that. But um, it was Will Smith um, who obviously co-starred in Independence Day in sorry Men in Black and did the theme song yeah um and yeah I don't know why they don't do it anymore um my point about Men in Black I rewatched it about five years ago I watched I found it howlingly funny at the time in 1998 rewatched it and didn't laugh once five years ago <laughs> so like scary movie like the scary movie franchise which were cripplingly brilliant around the turn of the millennium and um haven't really aged very well. It was really the height of, or the beginning of the height of Will Smith's career because that summer he had that song and then he had his album Big Willy Style, of course. <laughs> um, and Wild Wild West he had the rap for as yes, well, didn't yes, he? Yeah, the song in yeah. that. So yeah, and that was old school, like doing the song for your own movie. Yeah, um, It's like standing up at the end of your own talk show and singing the, the credits song. I guess he had form of, for that with um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, didn't mm. he? Um, which was obviously which was obviously a big deal, but um, I think his leading man status was guaranteed there, and he's kind of he's slightly fallen off. He's slightly fallen off the cliff. Hasn't there wasn't he? a song for "I Am Legend," was there? I don't think there's a song for <laughs> "I Am Legend," and there certainly wasn't a song for "Bright," which is this apparently. I mean, you only have to look at a still from "Bright" to see uh, how awful it looks. Sort of monster film that he did a couple of years ago, but apparently he's big on Instagram now. Yes. Yeah. So that's where you that's where you can seek him seek him out. Happy twenty first anniversary to Men in Black. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Back Half. Uh, we've been edited by Caroline Crampton. Please do rate us or review us on itunes get in touch if you have any non-anniversary suggestions i'm on twitter at tom underscore gatti and we have an email address the back half podcast at gmail.com and 
we're going to leave you not with Michael Jackson. <laughs> but with the Nadja Nobling Pistol Jazz and their song Godspeed. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.